Hi everyone, my name is Melissa Lee and I'm your health coach who targets women with PCOS and women in general who wants to achieve stubborn weight loss. I do my best work when I work with PCOS urban women in their 30s who are embarrassed about their weight but want to feel comfortable in their bodies and are able to lose stubborn weight naturally. In this podcast, we talk about various topics including why stubborn weight loss is so hard to achieve. If this is you, definitely put this in your podcast list because one episode will be released every single week. I'd like to take a quick break from the podcast to talk to you about Anne-Marie Skincare. Anne-Marie is a wonderful brand that is special because they handcraft and pick their ingredients from the wild. These ingredients include herbs and plant extract. The picked herbs are then infused into aloe vera and skin oils at low heat for up to 30 days, which becomes a base for the products. The natural products are then developed individually with specific aromatherapy, plant and seed oils, skin supporting nutrients, and more to create effective natural products. I love their products and they provide a great way to get started with sample size kits. My favorite products are the mineral foundation, herbal facial oil, and aloe herb cleanser. Upon getting the mineral foundation, I was actually able to get rid of my previous liquid foundation, concealer, and loose powder. Talk about multifunctionality. So with the mineral foundation, I could get rid of three to four of my old products, and I definitely love Anne-Marie very much. So for more info, you can go to nourishmount.com, go to the shop page, and look for Anne-Marie Skincare to get your free sample kit. And now, back to the podcast. Hi everyone, I have Dr. Karina today on the show to chat about gut, sleep, and our hormones. So there's a lot to unpack. Dr. Karina is a licensed naturopathic physician and medical researcher specializing in women's health using functional medicine tools. She helps women at all stages of life. And so I would love to hear her thoughts on gut health and the connection between sleep and our hormones. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really happy to be here. I actually found you on Instagram, so I'm really excited for what you have to say. So let's just talk about the gut first. How is the gut connected to our hormones? Yes, it's so well connected. So I think about it going both ways, from the, from the top down and from the bottom up. So we can think about the top down from the brain to the gut. So we'll talk about that first. So the brain we know really can influence things, uh, hormones that specifically the area of the brain that we're thinking about doing this is the hypothalamus and the pituitary. So we know that uh, there are hormones delivered via those two parts of the brain that can influence things like motility, secretion of different um, satiety hormones and other things in the gut, nutrient delivery, and influence the microbial balance. And then from the gut back to the brain, we know that the, the, the gut can influence our neurotransmitters. So things like serotonin and dopamine, our stress and anxiety, our mood, our behavior. And then the microbiota or the flora that live in the gut very much influence things like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, and our satiety hormones known as leptin and ghrelin. So it's really well interconnected. Um, and definitely can dive in more. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So not too scientific, but yes, but I do. I do want to bring out that there's like the vagus nerve, right? That oh, yeah. connects that. Exactly. 
Yeah. So that's a great point. Yeah. So the vagus nerve is a bi-directional gut brain neural neuronal superhighway. So it's like, mm-hmm. you can think about it like the main connector between the right. two. It's like a freeway. Um, it's a freeway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we know that in um, conditions of people who have um, IBS or IBD, these are conditions of the gut. Um, there's an overactivation of that superhighway and it can be pro-inflammatory marker uh, markers that can influence how um, different things occur in the gut, the motility, the nervous system, and things like that. We definitely see a connection there um, in relationship to mood and anxiety and also cortisol. So for example, I was just thinking about it, um, like an example of how the gut relates to the hormones could be, Mm -hmm. you know, someone brings up to me that they always feel constipated right before their period. And then during the period, they just feel like, whoa, like everything's out. So, you know, could you explain a little bit about the connection there? Sure. Yeah. That's one that comes up a lot. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, that one is really common. Um, So what happens basically is that um, during our cycle, we have the first half of the cycle and the second half of the cycle, right? Phase one and phase two, I think of it as, or the, Mm -hmm. um, the follicular and the luteal phase, ovulations right in between. The second half of the cycle, a lot is happening with the hormones. Um, progesterone goes up, is highest in the second half of the cycle typically, and estrogen also goes up, not as high as progesterone, but both of those um, can cause bloating and constipation. So we know that progesterone enhances sodium and water retention. Um, it can um, also, estrogen can do the same, and they can cause that kind of bloating sensation and um, the high progesterone also slows the smooth muscle um, down that is is in control of that movement or the peristaltic action of the GI. So we get constipated really naturally with high progesterone. Um, and then when those hormones drop, like right about when we when we bleed, those hormones tank. That's when they're the lowest. That's mm-hmm. why we bleed. Um, and the often people will get a release. Like they'll have like really loose stools the day of their period, even sometimes diarrhea. Um, so that's because that low progesterone increases the motility at that point. Oh, that's interesting. So that, that will be normal, right? Like, yeah, yeah. so a lot, exactly. So a lot of that, I, it, it depends, like if somebody's bloated all month long, then there's something going on and we need to look mm-hmm. into it. But if somebody just has this kind of regular low lying, um, a little bit of constipation and then a release of their stool kind of right towards the end of that second half of their cycle, I just say, you know, that's really common. That's really normal. It's, it is really normal. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It makes me feel so much better. And I think women <laughs> out there, because I think also during the luteal phase is where everybody, well, most women would get cravings or they would feel especially like bloated or like, especially like, I don't know, quote unquote fat, but it's nice to know that, you know, that's, that's just like the constipation piece at least is just like a biological thing. Yeah. And you feel a little bit swollen because there is a, um, like the sodium and water retention is actually caused by the hormones too. So it's not that your hormones are imbalanced necessarily. It's just that that's what the hormones are doing Mm -hmm. to our bodies. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, cool. So then on that note, if we're talking about estrogen and progesterone, um, some women have estrogen dominance. So can Mm -hmm. you explain what that is and then how that is connected to the gut? Yeah, sure. So estrogen dominance, is, is what means one of two things. Either estrogen is higher than it should be according to what is physiologically normal, or estrogen is 
within normal, but progesterone is low because we're always comparing it to what the dominance part means that it's dominant in relationship to progesterone. It's not balanced with progesterone, which those two really need to be well balanced, especially in the second half of the cycle. So the term estrogen dominance can be the, one of those two things. And the only way to know is to test. And the only time you want to test your estrogen, unless you're on some form of hormone, hormonal um, support or, or hormones, exogenous hormones, is to get it done during the, your period. Or um, we say like day two to four is the best time to test your estrogen to know where it's at um, in relationship to the other hormones. So, and then, Oh, interesting. I didn't yeah. know that because I know progesterone you test on like day 21 or whatever. Exactly. So Okay. Yeah. So estrogen, you always test it in the beginning of when you have that lower level, that's when it's right. less reliable because it goes up and down so much throughout the cycle that mm-hmm. to get a baseline of, to know where you're really at, it's mm-hmm. good to test it right there in the beginning of your, yeah. Right when you're bleeding basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, so there are a few reasons why people can be estrogen dominant. Um, if you don't ovulate, so ovulation happens middle of the cycle typically for women and, um, that ovulation is when progesterone is released. The progesterone is released from the remaining follicle that releases the egg. It produces progesterone. So, um, so, so you may be estrogen or someone may be estrogen dominant. If they're not ovulating, they're not producing progesterone. Or if they are ovulating, but they're not producing a lot of progesterone, they may also be a little estrogen mm-hmm. dominant. Um, estrogen dominance, if somebody has very high estrogen, can also occur based on environmental exposures to things. Maybe they're ex- being exposed to hormones. Maybe they're on too much estrogen and not taking enough progesterone with that. So that can be another cause is through medication. Another super common reason why, be- why women become estrogen dominant is due to hypothyroidism. So hypothyroidism is present in about 2 to 15% of reproductive age women. So it's very, very common. What happens in hypothyroidism, so this is an under-functioning of your thyroid gland. Your thyroid gland lives in the base of your neck or in the middle of your neck. Um, And um, what happens is the hormone from the brain or thyroid-releasing hormone can um, influence our dopamine. Our dopamine, if that thyroid hormone goes up because it detects too little thyroid in the body, dopamine goes down, that can make people feel really depressed, really blue. Mm. Um, Another hormone goes up known as prolactin. Prolactin is what creates breast milk, but it also is what goes up when women are hypothyroid and that can suppress ovulation and it can suppress progesterone. And then we have estrogen dominance. So in relationship to the low progesterone or no progesterone. So um, mm. hypothyroidism is super common. And a lot of times women are estrogen dominant because of hypothyroidism. So you really need to explore, number one, are people estrogen dominant? They might be feeling the symptoms. What is that? What's going on? So I always test. I don't guess. So I say, test, don't guess. Yeah. <laughs> do that and test during the right part of your cycle. Mm-hmm. And then also make sure that um, you look at all the other pieces. Um, you know, if you are estrogen dominant, if you're not ovulating, so you want to see if you're ovulating. And there are a few ways to do that. You can test progesterone. You can monitor your basal body temperature. I'm happy to talk about that more in detail if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also get your progesterone drawn on day 21. Like you said, it's not a perfect test, but it's one way to do it. And then there are um, like urine metabolites you can measure throughout that part of your cycle too, to see if the progesterone, there's a test I've been trying out with some of my patients called Prove. And um, they have this, the urine metabolites that do show if you are, um, if your progesterone has gone up and it seems to be pretty well correlated so far from what I see with my my blood draws. So I'm liking that. 
That's cool. Is that like a similarity to the Dutch test? Because they use urine metabolites, metabolites too, right? Exactly. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I, it is really yeah. cool. I like when you can access stuff easily and it's not mm. always easy to like go get a blood draw. So, right. Yeah. So I have a question about testing. So earlier you said that um, to test estrogen, like they in the beginning of your cycle and yes. what if someone's like on like hormonal birth control mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so How that's gonna yeah yeah so that's gonna throw things off um it's gonna throw things off sometimes what i'll do is i'll test like sometimes people will go have be on their placebo pills or the seven days where they're not where they're not um, on the hormones so mm. they're just taking the pill but it's not a real and there's nothing in the pill it's just like a placebo or maybe it just has some iron in it so that's when I'll test so I'll, I'll right. usually test during that time now if they're on continuous birth control it's really hard to get a view of what's going on because you're testing but you're getting a skewed um, view. yeah it's basically it's- like covering it right Sort of yeah, like it is. Yeah. Well, you're using yeah, you're using exogenous hormone to control the system, which mm. is our, our hormonal system, our bodies. So, um, and we do that. You know, that happens and and for various reasons, it's given for various reasons. Um, but yeah, it's hard to see what's going on with the hormones. Right. You know, some, some people need to be on the hormones for various reasons, but um, but yeah, it's hard to test. Okay. So then earlier, um, you also mentioned the whole basal body temperature. Um, Mm -hmm. I did actually interview, um, I don't know if you know her, Lisa Henderson, Jack, she wrote, yeah, so she was, (laughs) I know she's awesome, right? So she has been on the show uh, to talk about the whole basal body body temperature, but um, I don't mind if you can do a summary of that just in case um, people haven't listened to the episode. Absolutely. And there are a few different technologies that I recommend to my patients. I'm happy to share those with you too. But anyway, the the basic premise is that um, when you ovulate, your body produces that progesterone, like I said, from that cyst that remains after the ovulation or the egg is released. And that progesterone causes a thermoregulatory shift in the body. It actually Mm -hmm. shifts the neurotransmitters and those neurotransmitters warm your body up. And so what we want to do is we're trying to measure that the first morning temperature read after three consecutive hours of sleep, we want to see what the body's temperature is. And we want to see it over the course of the whole cycle. Cause what you want to see is it rise about 0.5 to one degree mm-hmm. um, and sustained rise until the end of your, that cycle when you're about to bleed. So you want to see that shift um, after ovulation about 0.5 to one degree. And you need to use a specific thermometer known as a basal body thermometer, which you can get at the drugstore for inexpensive. It's, it can be very inexpensive. Um, um, and then you basically want to measure that temperature before you get up and walk around. So you measure it from bed and see what your basal body is doing. And if you're ovulating, you'll see that temperature shift and that sustained. Cool. Um, yeah. I like saying that. To be honest, though, sometimes for women with PCOS or like I have oh. PCOS, I do, I do see that shift, but sometimes it's quite hard. And I noticed that there would be fluctuations. And yeah. um, is it true that that's because like, I don't know, the estrogen's fluctuating or... With PCOS, it's tricky. You know, part of one of the criteria for diagnosing PCOS is um, anovulation or not ovulating. So it might be that the ovulation hasn't occurred the months that where you see a lot of ups and downs with PCOS. Mm -hmm. That's that's very typical. And that just is one of the things to see. Um, And that's one of the ways we measure and see if, you know, somebody has that criteria that Mm -hmm. um, qualifies for PCOS is that they'll have a lot of ups and downs. So that's probably that ovulation didn't occur during those Mm -hmm. cycles 
Yeah, it's so hard to read sometimes. Um, it I, is, I know. I tend to rely on the cervical mucus a little more. Uh, that happens. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, just for people who don't know, like the cervical mucus would, you know, become like more egg white exactly. uh, as it approaches ovulation. Okay, so cool. I love, I love talking about periods. I love how we like started <laughs> out with the gut and then we always end up with periods. <laughs> That's great. Um, okay, so what are some um, interventions to like, you know, help our gut so that we can have a positive impact on the hormones? Yeah. Well, one of the things I, like I said, I like to test. Um, I do a lot of testing in my practice and monitoring of um, labs. So um, I always recommend for people who have gut stuff going on or hormonal issues, I always recommend looking at thyroid. Um, thyroid is like mm. one of the things that you can't not look at um, for both the gut and the rest of the hormones. Like I said, if you have under-functioning thyroid, which a lot of women do, um, you definitely want to make sure that you are taking care of the thyroid and doing what you need to do to, to um, treat it because it, it will cause anovulation and that estrogen dominance. Um, it can cause delayed cycles, anovulation, or I'm um, sorry, not ovulating, but also amenorrhea or not bleeding as well. Um, right. Sometimes okay. overactive thyroid can cause bleeding too often. So it can go both ways, Um, but it all very much influences the gut. So um, we know that low thyroid function can lead to leaky gut, which you've probably heard of. Leaky gut is when the the lining of the the gut loosens and becomes inflamed. Mm -hmm. So like particles of food can actually seep through and get into the bloodstream. We know that low thyroid can influence inflammation. That can also then lead back to poor thyroid function. So I just can't talk about thyroid enough. The other thing is to make sure we're taking care of our microbiome. The microbiome um, has a huge influence on our estrogen levels as well. Um, there is something known as the estrobilum. I don't know if you've talked much about that on your show yet. <laughs> Actually, no. I, I mean, I know it, but I haven't talked about it. Um, yeah, I'm actually really excited. So you, yeah, you can go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically a collection of microbes that are capable of metabolizing estrogen. So we, one of our detox pathways for estrogen, we have a three phases of detox. The third phase mm-hmm. is through the gut, um, through our stool. So the microbes can either cause our stool to release estrogen or reabsorb it back into the body. Sometimes reabsorbing it is okay, especially if you have low estrogen state or if you like your postmenopausal, perimenopausal, for example. Mm-hmm. But um, for other people, we don't want that estrogen to be reabsorbed too much um, into the system and we want it to be released in the stool. So the, that collection of microbes is known as the estrobilome and um, they can either be just too, too abundant and then mm-hmm. too active or lower in amounts and underactive. Um, so the way to balance that is there are a few different ways. You definitely want to work on any infections in the gut or any overgrowth of anything you don't want, like fungus or um, opportunistic bacteria, pathogenic, anything, parasites, worms. That will all cause a shift in the direction we don't want it. But then also um, looking to see what beta-glucuronidase activity is. That's a thing you can measure in the GI I, I do a lot of stool testing, so I'll see, mm-hmm. you know, what the beta-glucuronidase activity is. And that's just basically an enzyme that gets released from that estrobilome, and that basically tells me, like, how active is it. Right. So, so a lot of people say, like, oh, yes, take probiotics. Take, mm-hmm. you know. um, it's so much more than that, really. It's all about, like, how we eat and what we eat, when we eat. Um, one thing I like to tell my patients, and a lot of reason, the reason why some people feel better doing things like intermittent fasting is because 
the healthy bacteria in our gut, they thrive off of um, the secondary byproducts of digestion. So when we actually pause or don't, if we're not, like if we have a break in our eating, and I don't like women to go too long or too far because that can actually stress our bodies way too much. But, um, you know, overnight, a good long time without too much food too close together causes um, those bacteria to not flourish. So you have to give it a break overnight is the best time to do it. So um, that's one Sounds way to good. do it. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like oh, the overnight thing is very doable. Like if you sleep eight hours, you're, you're almost there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then eating like an earlier dinner and not always possible, but is great for that too. Mm-hmm. So, and then, um, and then finding the strains and then rotating through those, the strains of different probiotics that are helpful for you. Not everybody does well with probiotics, but finding what strains your body really thrives off of, um, especially if you've taken antibiotics, you know, that can really shift right. things. So, okay. So, yeah. And that then seems just, like a lot of, um, I guess, guidance from a doctor to mm-hmm. find out which strain that person yes. needs, right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then um, some other basic things, you know, are you eating very rushed, very stressed all the time eating? Because that certainly doesn't help digestion. We know that we digest well in a relaxed state. So there's no under emphasizing how important that is trying to sit and enjoy your time while you're eating with people if you can. But I know it's not always easy to do that right now. (laughs) I can't believe though. I can't believe it's so hard to do that. You know, it's like such a simple thing, but oh my God, we have become such a rushed society. It's (laughs) So true. It's so true. And then one other thing that a lot of my patients don't realize, I tell them this too, is don't consume a lot of liquids when you eat because, um, you know, your body, basically the digestive function of your stomach, which is everything starts with when you're smelling and preparing foods. That's like a huge part of your digestion actually. Um, but then tasting. And then when you let the food go into the stomach, we have we want to allow the um, digestive juices basically to not be too diluted or else they're going to have a hard time breaking down that food. So I always say, you know, if you like water it down, you're diluting a lot. So try not to consume a ton of beverage with your, um, with your meal. You can do it like 30 minutes before or after, um, but just a little sips are fine, but you know, not, not a ton of liquids. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. So basically, um, so all these lifestyle changes, you know, like um, just kind of wrapping it up, like eating slowly, making sure you're chewing, you're not stressed. And then that would kind of enhance the astrobolome, I guess, that way. Yeah, I think regulate like um, a, a good balance to struggle them. Mm-hmm. You want a good, um, you don't want it to be too under functioning or over functioning. You want it mm-hmm. to be kind of just right, <laughs> just like that the right sweet spot. Um, so, you know, just taking care of the microbiome and taking care of the, the, um, the flora, taking care of moving your bowels daily, you know, making sure you're going to the bathroom every day. Mm, um, yeah. Paying attention. If you're gassy and bloaty all the time, that's, there's something going on and you should right. get it worked up, worked up. And a lot of people think that's just normal, but it's not, you know, I mean, outside of that time of our cycle, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, getting that worked up if it's, if it hasn't been already. And then, um, yeah, making sure you move in your bowels too on a regular basis, like daily, <laughs> at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once every three days is not normal. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, and then yeah, and there are a lot of um, one of my favorite types of foods is introducing a lot of spices and um, aromatic herbs into the diet. We know that's really helpful for 
detoxification. We know it's really helpful for secreting different types of um, uh, digestive enzymes and things. So I like introducing that into the diet and um, whole foods, of course. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, that's a good, you know, segue into the other portion, which is sleep. Sleep. <laughs> um, yeah, sleep is also another thing where I feel like sleep, when, when you throw out the word sleep and stress, everyone's just like, whatever, like, I know, <sighs> like, you know, but it's so underrated. So how important is sleep actually in relation to our hormones? Like, what is the connection there? Yeah, it is huge, huge. So sleep is a time when um, the body's hormones are like rejuvenating themselves. You can think about it like um, sleep is as important for your hormones as it is for how you feel and how you function in a day. So the, the hormones reset then too. They're often released into the bloodstream during our sleep. Um, growth hormone is essential for growth and tissue repair. So it's not mm -hmm. only it, but it, it's, it's essential for tissue repair in, in adults, and that happens at night when we sleep. Um, sleep helps to balance our appetite. It helps manage um, hormones such as ghrelin and leptin. Um, it helps reset our cortisol, and our cortisol is a huge component of our immune system, of our um, mood, and is um, so, so important for uh, many pieces of our health and how energetic we feel. So, you know, all of those things are related to sleep. And then, of course, the circadian rhythm, so how, our, how well our brain is functioning, how well we're thinking, and, and the acuity of our brain um, that is taken care of during sleep, too. So um, we see so many, I see so many health conditions in um, cases of people where they have like mm -hmm. a graveyard shift, or they have to work at night, oh. or they or there, you know, um, one thing that I see also very difficult if people don't sleep are, is weight regulation. So for people who are trying to lose mm -hmm. weight, or mm -hmm. they feel feel like they've gained and they're having trouble losing if their sleep isn't regulated, it's really tough, really tough because, right. again, it's um it's when our metabolism and our cortisol can shift. And then also what happens is blood sugar can rise if we're not sleeping well. Mm -hmm. Blood sugar can be underneath all sorts of other hormone and like including PCOS, if it's that type of PCOS where you have an insulin um, right. insulin um, concern or um, high blood sugar, you can see that more difficult. It's more difficult to regulate if people aren't sleeping. So on that note, it would also translate to like more cravings because you said that it affects like the our satiety hormone and our yeah. hormone. Yeah. So, um, so again, it affects those hormones. So how those are regulated in the body. So when we, um, if, if we're not sleeping well, we're going to feel, we'll have more cravings. We'll feel like a disordered kind of, um, craving schedule. And it might be, it might um, present like carb cravings or sugar cravings or mm -hmm. just not feeling. And sometimes it presents, um, in the opposite way, like a reduced appetite or a suppressed mm -hmm. appetite sometimes. Um, and in terms of the blood sugar, um, you asked about blood sugar too, right? Sorry. <laughs> uh, I, well, I just asked about cravings, but yeah, cravings. Oh, cravings. Yeah. Yes, but I think blood sugar is like a component of that. I was thinking about that yeah. part. Yeah. So um, yeah, so the cravings tie into then blood sugar because if we're if we are getting like the carb craving, more carb cravings, or mm -hmm. we're, we're craving kind of the the foods that not necessarily satisfying us. Um, then we're going to have higher blood sugar too. So it kind of can perpetuate itself and um, snowball effect in a way. Cool. Um, 
quick question. Some women, they experience like insomnia during their cycle. Any, <laughs> well, your eyes are widening. Any, know, conne- any connection? Struggle. Why? Like why? <laughs> yeah, that has a lot to do with that drop in hormones. So mm-hmm. um, this is what we see in perimenopause and postmenopause too. A lot of women have a lot of sleep. That's why it widened my eyes because it was, um, it's just like I all the time you know it's what mm-hmm. what women are dealing with all the time sometimes women get um like some night sweats too during their right. period or uh, their hot flashes hot flashes right. yeah and there might not be in perimenopause but that's mm-hmm. that's a little taste of what that's like because your okay. hormones are down when the hormones are down it influences those neurotransmitters that impact our heating and cooling um regulation and when we get when we have internal um flushes of heat even if we don't feel like that when the when the body temperature rises um at night especially it can wake us up so uh, you might not feel hot but you your body your body will wake you up if your if your body is too warm so that's part of it for sure yeah i should do an episode on like perimenopause (laughs) yeah it's really popular (laughs) yeah um well it's interesting because if you look at like if you look at how serotonin what serotonin, if you look at the serotonin pathway, you'll see that serotonin um, will transition into melatonin. It's part of that, the, where melatonin gets created, it's from serotonin, and then there are precursors for that. But basically, um, our own melatonin production is also down during our periods too, because the serotonin can go down. Oh, interesting. Okay. And if melatonin's down, then we wouldn't be able, well, some of us will might might have a problem with sleeping, basically. It might be harder to either fall or stay asleep sleep as deeply and then we have that fluctuation in um, body thermoregulatory system and that can wake us up too so in that regard how do we help (laughs) sleep like are there foods that are good for sleep (laughs) yeah i love that you asked that question because i feel like um foods are so important such an important part of sleep and Mm -hmm. you know like how we nourish ourselves is such an important part of all the but um, some of the things to think about during the day, well, number one, how much caffeine or stimulants are you drinking or consuming? Because I think people think even in the morning, sometimes if you're very sensitive and you're sensitive to caffeine, even drinking caffeine in the morning can impact how your sleep is at night because it can deplete your melatonin from that time and how it's produced at night. So that's something to think about, especially if you're having caffeine in the afternoon. Um, stimulatory drugs, um, different like ADHD medications or ADD medications can also mm-hmm. change how, how we sleep. So that's an important thing to think about. But then you asked about food. So um, what types of foods help with sleep? So I think about the foods, one of the most um, notorious foods that helps with sleep is, is turkey, right? You think about like, um, I'm, mm. I'm just thinking, thinking about that one okay. first because it has- chicken. I was actually thinking of bananas. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I don't know. I wouldn't have think, thought of bananas, but that's <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe not. But, but <laughs> I, I'd love to hear that more, a little bit more about that. Maybe the potassium and the um, nutrients. But um, yeah, the turkey has tryptophan in it, and tryptophan mm-hmm. com- converts to, to um, 5-HTP. 5-HTP converts to serotonin. Serotonin converts to melatonin. Right. So turkey okay. actually does influence sleep. I'm not. I'm not telling people to eat turkey if they don't already eat turkey. But I'm just saying, like, mm-hmm. that is one. One of the sleepy time foods, almonds can do that. Sometimes if people have like a craving for something after dinner, I say, you know, eat some like a handful of nuts, like almonds, if you aren't sensitive to almonds. Um, 
chamomile tea is amazing for sleep and calm and it's great for the GI system too. So I love chamomile tea. Um, let's see, fatty fish, omega threes, you know, good quality omega threes really Mm -hmm. help us sleep. It's amazing to see. Like I see that in my kiddos all the time. If they have, you know, we make some, like some wild caught Alaskan salmon or something they have, um, a better sleep that night. It's really nice to see. Walnuts also are helpful. Um, I like passiflora at night. You can do like a passion flower tea. Oh yeah, I do. I do like that. Ooh, um, yeah. Actually, the brand Traditional Medicinals, they have this nighty night. I think it has valerian in it too uh-huh. with the passion yes. flower. Oh my God. Every time I take it, it's like, I'm like zonked out. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. Yeah, I should drag my husband. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, that passion flower and the chamomile, um, Mm. those are lovely. And then like lavender is great for people who have anxiety at night. Um, I like that too. Okay, cool. I like that. Um, I had a question earlier about the melatonin. I forgot now. What was it? Uh, When you're talking about, oh, Actually, when you were talking about how some drugs can affect sleep, mm-hmm. um, I was thinking of people who take like SSRIs, like mm-hmm. um, yeah, like medication for like the anxiety or depression. Mm-hmm. Would that also, you know, cause them to not have too much sleep or like have problems with sleeping? Sometimes it can do one. It can go one of both ways. Um, so SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So they basically um, are inhibiting, they keep more serotonin in the synapse between the neuronal um, ends, basically. So they keep more serotonin available to act upon the body and make you feel like you have a boost of mood Mm -hmm. based on that elevated serotonin. So um, with that, sometimes people get sleepier um, Mm. on those medications and they can experience fatigue even during the day. So that can happen. And then sometimes the side effect might be restlessness or sleeplessness. Um, right. Yeah. So, so it just it, depends on the person. It does depend I mean, on the medication yeah. as well. Okay. So those are foods that are great for sleep. Um, what about some sleep hygiene uh, tools? Yeah. So, so, yeah, some of my favorites. Um, this one, I, I like to just generally say, you know, your body really wants to be asleep with the sun. When the sun goes down, your body is going to start giving you signals because the, mm-hmm. the sun setting is when the melatonin starts to be produced. You know, the melatonin in your body, when it's being produced, gets depleted by really bright light, especially the blue light. So, you know, that that depletes our um, own melatonin production. So, keeping the lights dim, letting yourself kind of relax and go with that darkening of the, your environment with the sun going down is amazing. Um, my husband and I went to New Zealand one year. Um, we, were, we were just basically camping for like a mm-hmm. month in different, we, 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 bought a, we bought a van, we camped love on that. different beaches. It was amazing. And we totally got in that rhythm of sleeping mm-hmm. with the sun. And I'll never forget how fantastic I felt like and we were eating we were on a budget we definitely ate like a lot of things you might not think of as being super healthy like we ate we ate a lot of salads and like granola and things like that which was fine but we ate a lot of pasta and a lot of cheap foods because we were on a budget and um but I just remember feeling like there the sleep taking care of my sleep 
was Mm -hmm. just everything, you know, and I think I felt so revitalized from that trip. Mm -hmm. But in, um, so, but I do, so I do generally say like, go to sleep with the darkening and the, when the light, Um, but, you know, aiming to be asleep between 10 and six, those are, that's a pretty good routine and cycle, especially according to like Ayurvedic medicine, we say those are, that's that's the key point of time to be asleep. Um, but for people who have trouble sleeping, I do say that you want to kind of avoid going to bed unless you're really sleepy. Um, so do something else to relax your body and mind um, and not just like sit on your phone in bed and try to, you know, but try to distract your mind in other ways and try to do relaxing things. Mm. Um, if you're not falling asleep after 20 minutes of being in bed, get out of bed and do something else to help you feel relaxed so you don't get frustrated and associate your bed with frustration. Mm. Um, you can begin rituals at night, like a warm bath. Um, Epsom salt baths are nice. Um, if people sometimes do need a snack, sometimes, you know, eating one of those foods um, can help, but sometimes people, if they have trouble with their blood sugar, that can help. Um, Waking up approximately the same time on the mornings, even weekends, you know, can also help get into a rhythm and um, avoiding taking naps actually can help people. You see that with kiddos as they grow out of their naps um, phase that it Mm -hmm. really helps them sleep better at night to, you know, not try and nap them after a while. Um, Avoiding caffeine after lunch. um, avoiding, Avoiding, you know, doing anything too stimulatory in bed, especially with the blue light. Um, avoiding alcohol within six hours of your bedtime, <laughs> which is when people typically drink at night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. definitely the alcohol will impact our um, circadian rhythm and our sleep. Um, and then, you know, sleeping aids are, and they're tricky. Sleeping aids, unless it's something like a melatonin or something natural, um, can really disrupt circadian rhythm over time, REM. So just know what you're doing. Talk to a professional. Right make sure you're not using sleep aids, overdoing it. Sometimes people will take Benadryl just kind of regularly at night. And Mm -hmm. I just, I encourage them to try to find out why they're having trouble sleeping and not just use those sleep aids. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, trying to clear your bed. Like if you have an overactive mind, maybe keep a journal, write something, write things down that you need to think about, or you're trying to get out of your mind um, Mm -hmm. so that you're not worrying. And then find yourself in a nice cool space. You remember when I said it, that your body will wake you up if you're too hot. So if, you're, if your room is too hot, if you're sleeping too hot, cool your room off. Find a way to cool it off and keep it nice and cold. And dark, and dark. Yes, oh yeah. If you, can, if you yeah. stretch your arm out and you can see your hand at an arm's distance and you can mm-hmm. see your hand, it's too light in your room. For your, your melatonin will actually be diminished that way. Oh, interesting. So there's so many like light and temperature and stimulatory activities um yeah. i can actually attest to that temperature thing because i get very cold at night and then i warm up in the morning but my husband's the opposite so he actually has been sleeping on the couch outside in the summer because it's way cooler and then he falls asleep right away if not he'll be tossing in bed so yeah. it's like a real thing guys like the temperature <laughs> thing it really um, is yeah and i also yeah. like the the whole you know, all your sleep hygiene uh recommendations I like to tell my clients or people who have trouble sleeping to like catch their sleep bus. Ooh, you know, like, you know, when you're yawning, it's like beep beep, like, <laughs> like you don't want to miss your sleep bus. It's like a kind of a good analogy for that. That is such a good point. I'm so glad you brought that up because yeah. it is. It's like it, you see that with little kiddos and you can, you can start to feel it in yourself too. You'll have a moment of getting sleepy and mm. a lot of people just ignore that sleep right. bus. 
Yeah. And then the fish beyond it. And then you get a, another burst of cortisol. And that yeah. second burst of cortisol is what your body's trying to do. It's trying mm. to use that at night to help repair and things like right. that. But if you're using it to stay awake, it's going to not, mm-hmm. not be as helpful for you. Yeah. And you don't know when you're And some people, their next bus is like very long, right? Like I know. Uh, it takes a long time to come. It's not like regular. So <laughs> exactly. I know. That's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. So, um, so on that note, actually, what is like your sleep routine? Like personal? personal. Yeah. Oh yeah. So this is, yeah, this is, this is the honest truth. Really. This is one of my hardest things that I, Mm. I have like, I basically keep track of a list. I start, sometimes I start with three. I'll keep track of them on like a whiteboard or something in my house. Everybody can see and they know what, how I'm doing, but I like to keep track of how my exercise is going. Um, Mm. if I'm able to stop working by a certain time, because I'm a, work really hard. I work too much. I work too much. Uh, I'm really good on the weekends, but like yeah. during the week, I'm always trying to get it all done before the weekend. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I like to try to be done by nine o'clock and that's a pretty, you know, I put my kids to bed and then sometimes I'll have work to do. So I, um, I like to be done by, by nine o'clock. Um, and so, so that's one of the things I keep track of, but I notice that if my exercise is better during the day, mm-hmm. if I, especially if I get out for a walk and let my eyes get into the light, yeah, uh, like a morning walk, my sleep will be much better at night. So that is a really like a perfect day for me will be, I wake up, get my morning walk. And then if I can do other exercise too, even better. And then mm. I stop working. If I can stop working by dinner, that's, an, oh yeah, that's incredible. Um, but you know, sometimes I do work after dinner and then after the kids get to bed. And so if I can stop by nine, great, still great. Yeah. Um, and then I just try to do something that relaxes me. Sometimes it's a warm shower. I don't usually mm. take baths, but sometimes it's a warm shower, even just washing my face, um, climbing into bed, letting, making sure it's nice and cool. I fall asleep pretty fast as soon as I hit the pillows. So um, sometimes I just chat with my husband and we just mm. visit. Um, I don't usually watch stuff at night um, unless it's like a special occasion, but it's really, for me, it's pretty simple. You know, I'll read a little right. bit. Um, he's a big reader, so he will read a ton before bed. But yeah, for me, it's just like, I usually fall asleep so fast that I don't get, I get a few pages in and I'm done. Um, but yeah, that's usually my nighttime routine. I love that. (laughs) I love that it's, you know, actually like pretty, um, relatable too, because, you know, people are going to be like, sometimes they get overwhelmed if like, um, the person recommending is like, yeah, I don't work, you know, after six for some people it's like. Oh, come on. So like, you know, when you relate that, okay, you stop work at nine, but you can sleep, you can still sleep well because, you know, you take care, you take care of yourself like in the day and like getting out in the sun. So I like that. I think it's very balanced in that way. (laughs) Try. (laughs) So in your opinion, um, I know we talked a lot about like strategies about for gut and sleep, but um, what are some first few steps that women can take um, to improve their gut or sleep issues? The first few steps are just to kind of recognize your weaknesses. I think not weaknesses. I don't like to see it like weaknesses, but really work like where are the areas that you feel like you could use the most, I would say, um, checking in with yourself or, or um, having someone keep you accountable. And that's why I like keeping track of just some three, like basic things. So mm. um, regular meals, a lot of women skip meals. Um, I can relate to that too. You know, I'll get busy in the middle of the day, and, but I have to force myself to eat lunch. I'll always sleep better if I eat a like more regular meals. So making sure you're not skipping meals, making sure you're not drinking too much caffeine. Those are some really basic things. And then the meals really like a balanced meal is 
and what is a balanced meal? I think I like to think about it as very plant forward, you know, person, I'm very, very veggie oriented. Um, but you know, a lot of some good amount of fiber, some fats, some protein, it can be veggie proteins. It's fine. You know, it doesn't have to be like meat. Right. Um, and then, um, your starchy carbs. So those are like your filling kind of veggies, like maybe root veggies or something in there it can be, could be like rice or something like that too. It doesn't have to be grain free or anything, but keeping a balanced meal blend throughout the day, that's satisfying. That's so huge. That's so huge. And like, controlling our blood sugar, controlling our mood, um, our appetite, our ability to think, concentrate, all those things and keeping our, our hormones balanced. Literally, like if we're skipping meals, um, mm-hmm. it really pushes our hormones. So, and our cortisol and our blood sugar and all those things. So, yeah. and then, um, yeah. And then just starting to notice, like, are we, do we consider ourselves to be night owls? Is that just a choice or are we out of a sleep rhythm and sleep habits that are healthy for us? Um, so finding a way to develop that, you know, movement during the day and then really just winding down at night. Like if you're somebody who ramps yourself up at night or even a lot of people think like, oh, this is my time. You know, it's when I get my own personal time is at night or it's my time to be social or whatever it is. Just remember how much the body really, really relies on those nighttime hours to heal, to um, re, re, um, kind of reinvent themselves, <laughs> your body for the next day and, yeah. um, and, and recover. It's detox time. It's, it's so much. So just don't, your sleep is everything really. Um, and so getting to sleep, you know, like we said, using some of those foods, some of the nighttime sleepy teas is in the store. So great. I love traditional teas. Traditional teas is a great brand. I like Yogi tea brand. Um, they have some great blends. They're really, you know, quite simple and, and quite safe, you know? Um, I mean, I wouldn't recommend to somebody who's, pregnant to be on some of those herbs, but, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, so, um, for a lot of, a lot of people, and you have to ask your doctor about this, but I do use melatonin, um, for hormone balancing quite a bit. And it's just, you know, I'll use a little baby dose. Not everybody tolerates it well, but Mm -hmm. it's very hormone balancing. I use it for fertility care. There's a lot of very good fertility research there. I use it a lot in perimenopause. And if we are burning off our own melatonin, you know, we can add some to the system and it can help. <laughs> it really can. Yeah. It doesn't turn off our own melatonin. So there's not okay. a feedback loop. Um, so, you know, that's, a, that's one, one that I love. But the, the herbs you're mentioning, like the valerian, the passiflora, chamomile, um, uh, there's so many other good ones, melissa, a lemon balm, you know, mm. those are all great. And they're very nervines. They're very um, soothing to the system. And just doing some sort of soothing blend of tea at night is great. Um, I love it. Yeah. Just listening to that, I feel like really sleepy. (laughs) So good. Okay. So I guess, yeah, those are really great tips. Um, Anything else you want to share? Oh, you can also share like where can people find you? Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, so I have a practice in Portland, Maine. I see, um, but I do see women all over. Depends on where you are, but you know, the best way to get to know me and if we'd be a good fit it's a schedule for a 15 minute, I do 15 minute free consults with, with um, prospective patients. I don't take everybody on. I think, you know, we have to make sure we're a good fit. And my mm-hmm. practice model is a little bit more unique. I take, I take people on for a year at a time, actually. So my practice model is, you know, a little more unique that way, but they can reach me by going to either my Instagram or my website. My Instagram mm-hmm. is drkarina, C-O-R-I-N-A, Dunlap, D-U-N-L-A-P, and um, that's my web, my website address as well. 
Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes so people can find you. Um, you're so nice. Like, I love all your recommendations and your energy. And it's like, if you were my doctor, I would feel so safe. Just, just saying. Um, that's, a, <laughs> that's such a compliment. Thank it you. Is, it is really. <laughs> you know, like some doctors are like really like, do this and do that. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't. So, it's overwhelming. Uh, yeah, it is. There's um, a lot. There's, a, there's so many tools in our toolbox, but you have to start, I think, with um, what people can do so they feel successful and then work into the deeper tools and the more advanced tools when needed. So Yeah, baby steps. Yeah, yeah definitely. All right. Thank you right. so much for your time. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here.